Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. (laughs) As a preacher, this is one of my favorite texts. (laughs) I'm going to read that again. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood a number of fine gentlemen with unpronounceable names. (laughs) Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. All the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, who also had unpronounceable names, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. That, incidentally, is the verse of Scripture that I've tried to use for over 60 years in my preaching ministry. Read from the book of the law, make it clear, give the meaning, so the people can understand what was being read. And Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred or holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. May God give us insight 
into this reading of his word. People of Israel had been brought into the land of promise after deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They had spent 40 years going around in circles in the wilderness because they were unwilling to enter into the promised land, but eventually a remnant of them went into the land of promise. God had clearly outlined for them how they were to conduct themselves, what he had called them to, what they were to do, and what they were not to do, and he made an abundant promise to them. He said, you do, you do it my way, and you'll be just fine. You choose your own way, and the wheel will come off for you. And that's precisely what happened. And the wheel came off a big time, and for 70 years, they had been carried away into exile. Jerusalem had been devastated. Their temple, the center of their religious and social and national life, had been razed to the ground, and everything was utterly desolate. But after 70 years, God had raised up a friendly ruler in Babylon, who had not only given them the freedom to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and particularly to reestablish the temple worship, but he had actually given them the means to do this. A remarkable turn of events. And they had gone back there. And we pick up the story at this particular point where after some considerable time battling against all kinds of problems, they had finally got the walls built and they got a temple built and they had established their homes. And we read right at the very beginning of the chapter that the people settled in their towns. So they were enjoying a degree of peace. They were enjoying a season of relative calm they did feel more secure than they had felt when they didn't even have any walls to protect them. They had managed to build their homes. And so one would have thought that everything would just be fine for them. Their homes were not absolutely ideal. The walls that had been built were far from impregnable. The temple that they had built, well, actually, the old folks who remember the good old days, they just burst into tears when they saw it and said, this is pathetic compared to the temple that we did have, the one that we do remember. But having said that, there was some semblance of worship. They did have a degree of comfort. They were enjoying far more security than they had been enjoying, but still there was something missing. Still there was something missing. Does that ring a bell? I don't suppose any of us would say our circumstances are ideal, but they're a whole lot better than they could be. They're a whole lot better than the majority of people's circumstances in the world of which we're a part. And yet very, very often we don't spend our time rejoicing in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. All too often we have to admit that there is an inner sense 
there's something missing. There's something lacking. It isn't that we expect everything to be perfect. We don't. But we sure would like it to be closer to perfect than it is right now. If we begin to think in those categories, I think you'll probably agree with me that we have quite a lot in common with the people in Jerusalem. All was not well in Jerusalem. A remarkable thing happened. You'll notice in the reading that we had a few minutes ago, probably didn't bother counting this as we were going through, but there are 10 occasions on which the term the people are mentioned. If not the people, then certainly a synonym describing the same group of people. What what actually happened in Jerusalem was a spontaneous people movement. It's very, very unusual for that to happen. A spontaneous people movement. It did not come primarily from the leadership. We know all about Ezra. We know all about Nehemiah. We know all about the Levites. They were all in place. They were all doing their thing. Nehemiah, he'd done his job. He'd got them settled in their houses. He got the temple rebuilt. He had got the walls in place again. He'd done what he was supposed to do. It wasn't Nehemiah's idea that there should suddenly be an uprising of the people. It was spontaneous in the hearts of the people who were saying things are better than they were, things are better than they could be, they're far from ideal, but there's still something missing. And do you know what the people movement was all about? They called on Ezra the scribe. Now, Ezra had a different responsibility from Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the practical man. He'd got to deal with the buildings. He'd got to deal with security. He had to deal with facilities. He was getting everything fixed. That wasn't Ezra's job. Ezra's job was to deal with the heart concerns, with the spiritual dimension of the people's lives. And the people movement took the whole people, not to Nehemiah, to fix their housing and fix their walls and fix their unsatisfactory temple, the people went to Ezra and they said, you know, we think there's something missing here and we think you're the person we need to talk to. And we are prepared to admit to you that we've been so busy building our houses, fixing the walls, doing all this stuff, We have neglected the word of the Lord. Bring the book. Bring the book. We need to return to the word of the Lord. Smart people. Not everybody has the ability when they look at their circumstances and say, you know, There's all kinds of economic inequality in our nation and we are developing class warfare. That's what was happening in Jerusalem. There are all kinds of problems in our homes that were settled in our houses. Everything looks fine on the inside, but we've got innumerable problems with our marriages. 
That's what was happening in Jerusalem. They say, we are pleased with what we've got, but there's so much more that we need. That's what was happening in Jerusalem. But it takes unusual people to say, these are very practical problems, and we realize that they are the result of a spiritual malaise. We need the book. We need Ezra. We don't need more reforms in housing. We don't need more reforms in security. We don't need more reforms dealing with economic equality. They're not the issues right now. The issues are inside us. Bring the book. We need to hear from the Lord. Do you see a parallel here? I do. I do. I believe inside many of our churches and undoubtedly outside our churches, there's a famine of hearing the word of God that we are rushing around and we're saying we've got this problem, we've got that problem, we've got the other problem, somebody fix it. And we are not recognizing what the people of Jerusalem recognize. They had a spiritual problem. They had a spiritual problem that was manifesting itself in all these other dimensions of their lives. What they needed is to hear a word from the Lord. And they knew where to find it. The book of the law. That's what it was called sometimes. The book of the law of Moses. That's what it was called other kind. The book of the covenant. Sometimes it was called for very good reason. There were different books here. And they had been collected and they became known generally as the book of the law. The word translated law is Torah. The Torah, deeply revered by the Jewish people, is what we would call the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, different books that at some point, in some way, we don't know the details as to exactly how they were brought together, these different books became known as the Torah, God's word to the people of Israel. Now, when we call them the book of the law, it sounds as if it's just a book of regulations. Far from it. In actual fact, if you think in terms of the first five books of the Bible, you know perfectly well that what the people were saying was, we have a spiritual problem. We need to get into the book where God reveals himself to us and his purposes and his ways to us. That's what we need. And so they turned to the book and they started reading. It wasn't a book, of course, it was a scroll. It must have been a very, very long scroll. 
if it included all the first five books of the Bible. That's why all those men were standing there because they weren't turning pages. They were unscrolling the scroll and it would go on way, way, way across the platform. And Ezra began to read. He didn't just go on reading all the time, he would pause. There's a very real possibility that some of them would not understand the Hebrew in which it was written. They spoke Aramaic. So the people went down and they found out the people who didn't understand and they made absolutely certain that they had translation. But then the people were given the opportunity to ask questions. What wasn't clear was clarified. What was confusing, they tried to put it in order. And then Ezra would pick it up again and hour after hour after hour after hour. In the heat of the day, the people stood there, hungry, hungry for the word of God. The net result was that they became informed of what? Well, they became informed, first of all, of the fact that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and they were reminded that they had been created by God, for God, in his image. And they were reminded of their identity. They were reminded of the fact that the God who created them had created them for fellowship with himself. And he had outlined in the book of Genesis how created for fellowship with himself. They have the privilege of knowing God, of being uniquely the pinnacle of his created order, how under God they would be his agents to develop and to enjoy and to care for and to protect the created order. And all that God wanted from them was for them to recognize that he was reaching out to them not as a grand impersonal force who had created the world and then lost interest or lost control or lost both, but that he had pointed out to them that he was a personal God, a relational God, and that he had called this people to himself that he might enjoy them and they might enjoy him. So not only did they know that they were created, not only did they understand the uniqueness of their humanity, they understood that God was a God of love and God was a God of mercy and God was compassionate. You know how they knew that? Because as Ezra worked his way through Genesis, guess what? He came to Exodus. In Exodus, there was the story of Moses. And the story of Moses was that God had raised him up to deliver the people from their slavery in Egypt. But Moses wasn't particularly enthusiastic about going to face Pharaoh. And so he says, it's no good me going to talk to Pharaoh. If I go to Pharaoh, he's going to say, 
What's the name of this God of yours? God, I don't even know your name. God says, all right, I'll tell you. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Read it, mark it, learn it, inwardly digest it. There's the most remarkable statement there. It is God's autobiography. And Ezra reads it, and now they say, ah, I'd forgotten. I was created in the divine image. I was created with a very, very special role to play in the created order. I I was given the opportunity of knowing God and relating to God, and God has revealed himself to me. He is compassionate. He is long-suffering. He is a God of mercy. He does not just pardon and turn a blind eye to sin. He will judge these things, but always there is a limit to his judgment, to the third or the fourth generation and all the time he is number one compassionate number one merciful number one full of loving kindness and they listened to all this and then they got a little further on in Exodus and they began to read in Leviticus and that was a bit of a struggle what they heard I the Lord am holy And I have set you apart for myself. Therefore be holy. They began to think about all this. Something very interesting began to happen. Their hearts were stirred within them. Because as their hearts were stirred within them, they realized how far they had drifted from God's intention for them. I see a parallel here with the culture of which you and I are a part. When we begin to think of our identity, when we begin to think of God's covenant relationships with us, when we begin to realize how compassionate how merciful, how long-suffering he has been. When we begin to think in terms of the incredible blessings that he's poured upon us and what we have done with them, when we begin perhaps to realize that God's self-revelation in his word has been of little or no interest to us whatsoever. Maybe uh, we begin to realize what's wrong inside. That's what began to happen to the people in Jerusalem that day. What happens to people who become busy with their houses and busy with their security and busy with their daily lives and recognize they've got all kinds of problems and things aren't what they might be But they never turn to God and they never turn to what God has said and they never relate to what God is revealing about himself and his purpose. What happens to people like that? Well, very, very often 
They lose any sense of transcendent purpose. Try and put yourself in the sandals of the people in Jerusalem. Actually, when they were in Babylon, and they were there for 70 years, obviously a lot of them had been born in Babylon. Lots of them had lived all their lives in Babylon. There was a very famous letter that Jeremiah the prophet had written to the prisoners in Babylon, and he said, okay, just suck it up, guys. You're stuck in Babylon. You're going to be there for about 70 years. Make the best of it. Settle down, build your homes, plant your gardens, and really be interested in the well-being of Babylon. Pray for Babylon. And the net result was understandable because it was all a lot of them knew. They just settled down there. When the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem and be a pioneer, you know, get in an ox wagon and set off for California sort of thing, they say, oh no, that's not for me. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay here. And some of the people were saying, you know, I think we should really go to Jerusalem and rebuild it. And those people went off and there was a nobility about them. There was something special about them. They weren't just going to take the easy road. They weren't just going to take the selfish road. They were going to operate under a transcendent vision. The transcendent vision was Jerusalem is the place where God is pleased to dwell. We need to build his temple. It is the center of our worship. God has said that this is where his presence will be. That's where we need to be. And they'd gone back, but over time, they'd lost any sense of transcendent purpose. And that's why there's emptiness in many people's hearts. They've lost any sense of transcendent purpose. Something else happens if we neglect the word of God. We find ourselves lacking a moral compass. Where in the world do we go if we want to find out not what is profitable, not what is popular, not what is comfortable, not what everybody is doing? Where on earth do we go If we want to know what is the right thing to do, what is the honest thing to do, what is the good thing to do, what is the beautiful thing to do? In other words, where do we go to learn a system of morality? And the answer is the word of God. Neglect the word of God, you neglect a moral compass. Neglect a moral compass and neglect a transcendent purpose, you're all at sea, up a creek without a paddle. Does that sound familiar in our culture today? If we neglect the word of God and lose the sense of transcendent purpose, and if we neglect the word of God and miss out on a moral compass, could it be that our culture in the end will be degraded. Listen to this. This is from John Adams, the second president of the United States of America, 
a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Can you believe it? A Brit actually quoting from the Declaration of Independence. This is what he said. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible as their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts they're exhibited. <laughs> Have you got that? Just, just try and imagine that, you know, you can dream. Suppose there was a nation in some region of the world that said our only law book is going to be the word of God. And every member will commit to regulate his conduct by the precepts they're exhibited. He went on to say, every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, to frugality, and to industry, to justice and kindness and charity to his fellow men, and to piety, love, and reverence towards Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise this region would become. <laughs> well, we can dream, can't we? No chance. No chance. You know why, don't you? Because we don't really want to live a life characterized by temperance and frugality and industry and justice and kindness and charity and piety and love and reverence. That's why very often we neglect the word of God. You know why? <laughs> because it tells us what we don't want to hear. Well, the wonderful thing in Jerusalem on this particular occasion was when the people heard the word of the Lord, hour after hour after hour, they began to mourn, they began to grieve, they began to weep. Something was getting through. They were realizing what they'd been created to be they realized what God had called them into a covenant relationship for. They began to realize the privilege of living in the land of promise. They began to recognize that the holy God had called them to be wholly set apart for him. And as they looked at their lives, what did they find? They'd lost transcendent purpose. They'd lost their moral compass. The whole of their lives were being lived with total disregard for the word of God. And the spirit of God took the word of God home to their hearts and they began to grieve. And here's the fascinating twist to this story. The fascinating twist to this story, <laughs> I don't think is, is what you'd expect, certainly not what I would have expected. I would have said, praise God, praise God. The word of God is bringing conviction. It's going to lead to repentance. It's going to lead to a new life of commitment and faith. Praise the Lord. 
read the story again. And Ezra says to the Levite, get down among those people quick and tell them to stop weeping and tell them to stop grieving. Tell them to stop all that stuff. Today is a day that is a holy day. This is a day that God has set apart for a special purpose. It is a day when Israel is called to come before the Lord and rehearse together and rejoice together in who God is and what God has done. It is a day of praise. It is a day of thanksgiving. It is a day of adoration. It is a day of total focus on him. And you're all focused on yourselves. You're all focused on what you've done wrong. That's not where the focus has to be. If you get into the word of God, the focus is not going to be on me. If you get into the word of God, the focus is going to be on him. When the focus is on him, this is what you're going to discover. (laughs) You're going to discover that he is calling you to obedience. He's calling you to obedience. Do you know something? Sometimes when we find ourselves in difficulties, we're quick to repent. But this repentance can become extremely shallow. Let me give you some examples. Oh, I am so sorry I got caught. Oh, I am so sorry I've hurt you and you're upset with me. Oh, I am so sorry because now I've got to live with the consequences of my own actions and I don't like it. And even that kind of repentance, that Cachello kind of repentance, is me-centered. Ezra says, no, we're not interested in me centrality here. This is a day where God has said, I want you to devote yourself to my word and find in it a revelation of myself and what I have called you to. And when your mind and your heart is filled and thrilled from reading the word and finding out who I am, then you'll begin to see yourself in the right perspective. Do you know the only time you and I ever see anything approaching an accurate view of ourselves? Do you know the only time that when that happens is when we have a vision of the Lord and we stand against him. You know what happens then? When we have a vision of the Lord rather than a vision of me, and I begin to see the Lord, and I stand in his shadow. Now the repentance is a whole different brand, a whole different variety. 
And I wonder, I wonder if it could be true that one of the reasons that very, very often people in our culture have no interest whatsoever in the Word of God, and even many of the people in the church have little interest in the Word of God. I wonder if it could be, because they know that if they do expose themselves to God's self-revelation in His Word, they're going to see themselves as they really are. And when they see themselves as they really are, they're going to know a huge change is necessary. I'm going to conclude now. There's much more we could say. I'm going to conclude now with a quotation from Søren Kierkegaard. You remember him? Probably not. Never mind. He was a 19th century Danish philosopher. I know you knew that. I just said that so you'd know I knew that. <laughs> this is what he said. Søren Kierkegaard. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. <laughs> Do you want me to read any more? <laughs> I'll start again. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it. How many people say, oh, I don't read the Bible, I don't understand it. We pretend to be unable to understand it because... We know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. The minute we admit we understand what it says, we are obliged to act accordingly. I said I was going to stop. I was wrong. (laughs) I just want to tell you a story. I just thought about it. A few years ago, a lady came up to me in a conference. It was a conference for Chinese people. And she asked me if I would be interested in working with them in publishing some of my books in Mandarin with a view to presenting them to the censors in China with a view to publishing them and putting them in the regular bookshops in China. So I was sure. And so she said, well, just give me one of your manuscripts and we'll see what we can do with it. So I gave her one on the Ten Commandments. We didn't hear anything for two or three years. And then right out the blue, I got word, we've translated it, we presented it to the censors. They have passed it. In fact, one of the censors said, this is a very good book, I don't want any changes, and I just wish every member of the party could read it. That was pretty good endorsement. And they said, we're going to have a special launch of this book, and we wondered if you could come over to Beijing, and we want to interview you and uh, launch the book. So we went over to Beijing. And uh, it was fascinating. This room full of reporters. They had television cameras there, and the idea was for me to introduce the book, and then they could ask questions. First question, why did you write a book on the Ten Commandments? (laughs) So, well, that was easy to answer. I was able to explain to them that God 
created us and God has revealed his purposes for us and that he wants us to love and honor and trust him and the people didn't know how to do it so in the end he sort of encapsulated some ways of loving and trusting and obeying him and we call them the Ten Commandments. So they said, why did you write a book on it for America? I said, because America was founded by people who believed in the Ten Commandments. So they said, like who? So I said, well, for instance, one of the founding fathers said, we are not pinning our hopes for the success of our new nation on our unique form of government. Rather, we are pinning our hopes for the success of our nation on the ability of our people to honor and live by the Ten Commandments. So immediately the hands went up. Do Americans live by the Ten Commandments? (laughs) So I said, I can't speak for all Americans, but we have a very influential magazine in America called Atlantic Monthly. And recently they did a survey of 20-somethings in America, and they asked them questions about the Ten Commandments. They found that on average, they knew two of the Ten Commandments. On average, they knew two of the Ten Commandments. Another question that they asked these 20-somethings were, are there any of the commandments that you don't like? And the two that they disliked most were honor your father and mother and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So then they were asked, if you don't like those two, would you like to replace them? If so, how? And they said, yes. Love the environment. And secondly, thou shalt not drink and drive. The next question they were asked was, if we were to revise the Ten Commandments, who would be the most suitable person in America to supervise the revision? And the answer was, roll of drums here. Oprah. Oh, listen. Oprah Winfrey. So I said, that's why I wrote a book for America. (laughs) On the Ten Commandments. Hold it, listen, hold it. Then the next question was, why have you brought it to China? And I said, that's easy to answer. Because America is drifting further and further and further away from the book. But I said, I have talked to many leaders in China university professors, pastors, all kinds of people in authority, and they are saying, 
We have been looking at the difference between China and the Western world, and we are impressed with the economic development that you have enjoyed, that we have, we are light years behind, and we have researched it, and we have come to the conclusion that the difference between the economic quality of the West and of China is simply this, that, that your nations respect the Ten Commandments and we need to learn them. Will you find people who will come and teach us the word of the Lord here in China? We will open theological faculties in our universities. We will have schools of business ethics. We need to know. And I said, can you imagine the irony here? Can you imagine the irony here? There's a fellow, I'm afraid he's British, and I'm, I apologize. <laughs> His name is Piers Morgan. He went on record not only of saying that the Constitution of the United States of America is inherently flawed, particularly the Second Amendment, but he even went much worse than that. He said the Word of God, the Bible, is inherently flawed and needs dramatic revision. That's where we are, folks. That's where we are. And the people of Jerusalem knew better. And they said, bring the book. Bring the book. Now let me ask you a question. Do you love his word? Do you read it? Mark it? Learn it? Inwardly digest it? Believe it? And obey it? Or does it gather dust? When you come to listen to a sermon, what is your expectation? What is your preparation for the end of the sermon? How many notes do you take? Remember what Scripture says. Scripture says, meditate upon these things, and the Lord will give you understanding. How long do you meditate on what you heard in the sermon. You see, all these questions will give you a, a pretty good indication as to how important God's Word is in your life. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Lord, for your Word. Ancient words, ever true, changing me, changing you if we give them a chance. Give us a love for your word. Give us a sense of incredible privilege that we have it in our own language, freedom to read it, abundant resources to help us understand it, and the challenge that you would never call us to do anything without giving us your spirit to empower us for enablement. Lord, Give us a love for your word because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.